You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. In this episode, our interns are taking over. Our four research interns will be telling you all about their time here at the Institute, what they've been working on and what it's like being a research intern for Aspie. You'll also be hearing from our HR manager, Fiona Torline, who'll give you advice about the internship, what they're looking for in applications and some of the benefits of being an intern here. Hi there, I'm Renee Jones and joining me now is Aspie's current batch of research interns because the interns are taking over the Aspie podcast. So with me here is Luke, Reese, Genevieve and Marley. So I'm going to jump to each of you now and ask you to very quickly introduce yourself so our lovely listeners know who you are. Um, but also just for my personal judgments, I'll ask you to include the last movie you watched. So Luke, I'll start with you. Well, hi guys, my name is Luke. Um, I've uh, just graduated from the ANU with a Bachelor's of International Security in Thai and my main research interests are Thai politics, uh, middle power relations and great power competition and the most recent movie I've seen was Avengers Endgame. Oh, actually we won't talk about that Luke because I know you and I no, have... It's traumatising. Yeah, the, there are some feelings, we're not going to talk about no, it. Um, yeah. we won't. And off... And there's no spoilers on this podcast. This is a spoiler-free podcast. (laughs) All right, Marley, we'll go to you. Um, Like Luke, I also did a Bachelor of International Security Studies at the ANU and I've um, also done a Bachelor of Politics, Philosophy and Economics. Um, My research interests include the politics and security of Southeast Asia, um, the threat of climate change and applied ethics, and after working in the International Cyber Policy Centre, I'm also really interested in cyber and technology. I think the last movie I watched was The Witness, which is an old movie about an Amish community um, yeah, right. at a mother and son who witness a murder and what that means for their sort of Amish values. Interesting. It's a classic, I might, suggest. Might it. check it out. All right, Marley recommends. Okay, Genevieve, tell me all about yourself. Hi, everyone. I'm Genevieve. Um, I have a background in peace and conflict studies and law, and my research interests are climate change policy, multilateralism and peacekeeping policy. I actually can't think of the exact last movie I watched because I watched about eight on a plane in a row <laughs> recently. But one I probably most enjoyed recently was Call Me By Your Name. Oh, oh. I'm actually tearing up just thinking about that movie right now. Um, just if we could, um, Jerry plays Sufjo Stevens delicately in the background at this moment while a single tear rolls down my cheek. That would be fab. Um, Reese, <laughs> tell yes. me all about yourself. Absolutely. So my name is Reese. I'm currently studying a Master's of National Security Policy at the ANU and I'm doing a thesis there as well. My main research interests are probably the the, uh, the intelligence policy nexus, so how policy is translated and intelligence are translated into policymaking, as well as climate change resilience. And now, Renee, this is a definitely this question is definitely an attack on me because the last movie I watched was The Princess Diaries. So I mean, <laughs> um, actually, it's not an attack because The Princess Diaries was my favorite books growing up. I've read all ten of them. <laughs> I didn't know there were books, but anyway, I, now I know. <laughs> and I have actually many feelings about the adaptation, and I really? nearly did because I'm an English major. Yep. I nearly did my honors thesis mm. on The Princess Diaries and the Romana Clef and. To the princess trope. Um, so mm. we'll have an intense conversation about that later. Secure Genovia, that's all I've got to say. Secure Genovia. <laughs> all right, so this is a podcast in which the interns are taking over. 
whether that's because I didn't have enough time to produce a podcast this week or because I think you're all genuinely very fabulous and interesting human beings um, who I want to hear from and I want to hear what strategic issues are keeping them up from at night. Who knows? Um, but I think we know it's the latter. Mm. Um, so now that's it. I'm wiping my hands clean. This podcast now belongs to the intern, so I take no responsibility going forward. So <laughs> hand it over to you guys. So welcome, guys. I'm sure a lot of you um, listening are interested in becoming interns at Aspie and are interested in learning more about what we do here at Aspie. So I'll start talking a little briefly about what I've been working on at the moment and the others will uh, um, jump in as well. So once again, uh, my name is Luke and I've been uh, working with the International Cyber Policy Centre at the moment, working on a foreign election interference project with Mali. and. Uh, this is one project we were uh, assigned at the start of the internship. So usually uh, we sit down with Fiona Torline, who's our HR manager, and she tells us what projects are going on at the moment. Uh, senior analysts at Aspie have different projects that they are working on. We get to decide which projects we would like to work on. So Molly, could you uh, introduce our listeners uh, to the research project we've recently been working on? So there's been a lot of interest around foreign interference in the 2016 US presidential election. So what we've done is we've looked at all the national elections that have taken place in the world since this 2016 election. And we looked for cases of foreign cyber enabled election interference. Um, in doing this, we identified three broad categories. So firstly, we found interference that targeted voting infrastructure and tried to suppress voter turnout. Secondly, we found interference in the information environment, which was the spread of disinformation. And thirdly, we found interference that tried to erode public trust in democracy over the long term. Um, foreign interference in elections isn't new, but technology has changed the means with which states can interfere in other, in other states. So for example, today Russia can reach over 100 million US citizens um, just through Facebook alone. Um, having a big impact in other states is now much easier, cheaper and less risky. So several problems we found um, whilst conducting research uh, for this project was that few states are actually involved in efforts to undermine uh, democracies around the world. So there are two countries who are leading this effort, China and Russia. But at the same time, even though we see these states actively trying to undermine democracies like Australia, like the United States, or a lot of European states, measuring the impact of foreign election interference is quite difficult to assess. Although the issue of foreign election interference has come to the fore since 2016, it's still a rel relatively misunderstood phenomenon. It's very hard to assess how states are able to interfere in our elections because, for example, working at the International Cyber Policy Center, we, we just focused on cyber-enabled foreign interference. But there are a whole host of other means through which you can successfully undermine a democracy. And so because, for example, states have had a tendency to focus more on external intelligence collection efforts, it's been much harder for us to determine um, the means through which, for example, let's say China has been able to undermine uh, the Australian public's trust in, in our politicians and our system more broadly. 
And another issue I'd like to point out is the fact that we're not yet able to really grasp how to protect ourselves from foreign election interference because we don't understand the threat we're not really able to come up with the appropriate solutions and i don't think we've seen any state for that matter that's been able to really pin down what exactly they should do to counter the efforts russia or china are doing or undertaking to undermine our democracies i think that's one issue that we should be thinking about yeah, that's right, Luke. And I think our project is one small step in starting to actually identify, well, what is the interference we're seeing and how can we start preparing for it? So just um, thinking about some of the solutions. Firstly, the response from a country should be calibrated to the likely risk and adversary. So if you're in Europe, you really should be thinking about Russia. And if you're in the Indo-Pacific, you should be thinking about China, because that's really where we're seeing these two states interfere. Um, there also needs to be more effort towards detecting foreign interference. Um, this is really tricky because the solution is probably not more government surveillance and monitoring because democracies don't tend to like that, but maybe it's supporting non-profit and non-government initiatives. Um, we also need to have more effort focused on assessing and measuring the impact of foreign interference so that we can actually figure out how big an issue it is. We need more funding to better secure politicians and political parties against cyber attacks, um, like the one we saw um, against Australia targeting our own political parties. And finally, we need to impose costs on um, these two primary states, Russia and China, to make it more costly for them to do this, and then maybe they would consider stopping. Um, but Luke, do you think after the research we did that um, the threat of foreign interference um, is overstated, or perhaps that there's also like other issues? So yeah, it is an interesting question because, like I said previously, we did just look at cyber-enabled foreign interference in our elections, but in my opinion, that's just a drop in the bucket. There's a whole host of other issues we need to think about in terms of election interference more broadly, and one of them is domestic interference. I think that's another phenomenon that we haven't really uh, tried to grasp yet. Our report highlights that there are other means through which states can successfully undermine uh, democratic elections. Our report hasn't looked more deeply into the impact domestic election interference may have, and that's something I think uh, perhaps ASPE or other think tanks and governments should be looking, lo looking at more closely. I think politicians, our politicians and politicians around the world are doing much bigger damage to our democratic institutions and norms than any foreign actor could ever achieve. For example, I think Russia spreading fake news throughout Europe is much less harmful than uh, a politician actively trying to get the public uh, to distrust the political system or undermining their trust in democracy more broadly. I think that does much more damage. For example, President Trump, who in the United States says, I think his actions have done a lot of harm to the United States democratic system. A lot of people seem to think that his impact on the United States and the world more broadly is just a blip, that when he'll leave, um, things will go back to normal, but I think the impact he's having is is going to be uh, much more long term. And we can think about Australia's roller coaster prime ministership as well. We tend to joke about it. I think that's really had an impact on the way we perceive our politicians, and we see that in the way we've approached uh, the election that's coming up on Saturday. 
Our, the public trust in Australia's democracy is really low, I think, at the moment, and that's a huge threat. One place we've seen a lot of uh, domestic uh, election interference is uh, Indonesia, and Mali's been working on Indonesia's uh, recent election, and I think she had an interesting insight into what's been happening in, in terms of uh, fake news and how some domestic political actors are trying to undermine the public's trust in Indonesia's democracy. And so, Mali, my question for you is, what does the future of Ind Indonesia democracy look like? We've seen a lot of people criticise uh, Indonesia's democratic system, uh, being quite pessimistic about it. Like you said, I looked at disinformation targeting Indonesia's electoral commission. So um, we're used to disinformation that targets different political candidates, but in Indonesia's recent election, we saw a really concerning rise in disinformation targeting the Electoral Commission itself. And I think this is really worrying because it undermines people's um, trust and belief in the system itself. And this probably has longer term consequences for democracy than the targeting of different candidates. In saying that, though, I am optimistic about Indonesia's democracy because while we saw heaps and heaps and heaps of disinformation, we also saw a really strong movement of civilian accountability and all these different groups sort of popped up and started working together to um, basically check these, these hoaxes and say if they were true or not true. So while we saw lots of disinformation, we saw people coming together and saying, we're not gonna believe this all, we're gonna work through the facts. And I think this really strong civilian accountability shows the strength of Indonesia's democracy. That, so yeah, that's a really positive development for Indonesia because we've seen a completely different dynamic in Thailand where the election commission has been able to uh, be as independent and impartial uh, uh, as it should be. So if you want to look at the election interference report that we spoke about or any of the other pieces we've chatted about, we'll link them in the description below. Now we're going to throw over to Reese and Jen who will be talking about critical infrastructure and resilience. So here we are. Uh, Jen, how are you going? Great, how are you today? One, I'm very well. So what do you mean when you say resilience and why do you think it's important for Australia's national security? When we've been framing resilience, what we're really talking about is making systems and societies less vulnerable to external factors and threats, which could potentially negatively disrupt the functioning of any society. So we've looked at quite a broad range of issues from critical infrastructure, um, defence, economic and psychological capability, but also there's another whole side of it, which is like environmental sustainability and resource sustainability, um, which we've written on a little bit while we've been here. And I think a really key point here as well is, and why it's important, is all hazards and approaches to resilience require different forms of engagement. And this is where some really interesting policy discussions can come out. I'm actually quite interested in critical infrastructure and why it's important for our national security. And I know you've done a fair bit of work on that while you've been here. Perhaps to start off, how would you first define national security so we can then think about how to plan for? I'm so glad you asked this question, Jen. It's one of my favorites to really launch into. So first things first, national security is not completely understood by everyone as exactly the same thing. Now, human security brings very different understandings of what we should secure and what we should prioritize. Now, whereas national security in the gaze of the government or state governments can be quite different. So there are different definitions of national security from operating the state at a normal level to securing critical infrastructure. If we're going to focus on the securing infrastructure point, we have to understand what critical infrastructure means. That includes structures or products that are essential for the function of, of everyday life. So at the Critical Infrastructure Centre at Home Affairs, they've defined critical infrastructure as energy, food, water, transport, communications, health, 
banking and finance. Secure and resilient infrastructure should support productivity and should help to drive business activity and economic growth. Translating these industries, which are 90% of which are under control of the private sector, can be quite a challenging thing to bind with government priorities. So that's definitely some uh, a creative tension, I think, between private industry and the government. And it's something that we should actively work towards building more of a connection and a better working relationship. When we talk about vulnerability, we also consider environmental sustainability and vulnerability. So you've done quite a lot of work on the Northern Territory. Some of the work I've done is on energy resilience in the Northern Territory and also on, we wrote a piece on water management as well, which brings in similar themes. But what's really key there is taking a longer term view of potential issues because in most governments, it's difficult sometimes to take that longer term view and instead turn to the short term for easy economic gains. And so um, I think that's a really key issue here when we're discussing vulnerability and resilience is to emphasise that the longer term is fundamentally what's more important. Uh, another key issue here is, and what also makes Australia vulnerable, is um, only viewing issues through a single lens. And so, for example, when we wrote on water management in the Northern Territory, we realised that Australia frames water management in Australia, particularly in the context of like the Murray-Darling Basin, um, as a capital resource, so basically how can it support our economic growth? But it's also really important to look at it through a development um, lens as well, and also a security lens. And so we realised that um, water has a really important role in dual-use facilities such as the Darwin Airport and other defence facilities in the Northern Territory. And this is a really important conversation to have. And so as a kind of final point here, while it's important to look at it through a longer term and also through multiple lenses, there's also stuff that's out of our control. So there's significant environmental concerns and natural disasters, which, as I said, the effects of which are largely out of our control. But this means we need systems in place to respond to when these events do occur. And Reese, I think you've probably got some interesting input here. Oh, absolutely, always. So <laughs> part of the research that I've done has been on total defence planning and ec economic and psychological resilience. So what this basically is, is the ability of not only the corporate sector to engage itself in the national security project, but also for the ability of the population to survive various crises simultaneously. And one great report I would definitely recommend for our uh, listeners to read was Robert Glass's report on the cascading effects of climate change. So one of the great examples that he gave, which is still kind of crazy when I think about it, is saying that the drought that happened in Syria in 2007 directly led to Brexit because it led to the civil war, which led to the migrant crisis in Europe, which added to the fervor against migrants in uh, the UK, and that led to the furor behind the Brexit decision. So not thinking about climate change or these crises in singularity, but thinking about an all hazards complete approach to the cascading effects and risk multipliers associated with these kind of crises and challenges that we'll face in the future. From a younger generation's perspective, we, we're all in agreement that one of the major challenges we face at the moment is the lack of global leadership on a whole range of issues like climate change, human rights and democracy. We don't see states being able to collaborate with each other on these issues. And that's a challenge us interns would like think tanks and governments to think more about into the future. Exactly, Luke. And I do think that US leadership on strategic issues like this is very integral for Australia, especially considering our relationship and pivot to the Pacific, which we are actually be running a panel on in the next month. So if everyone's interested, you should definitely come along to that as well. Link will be in the description.
All right, Aspie intern team, I am clawing my way back into the Aspie podcast because I'm a total diva. But thank you so much for telling us about yourselves and what you've been doing at Aspie. I'm interested in, um, and I ask this question of quite a few people, is what is keeping you up at night in terms of, you know, you um, are all brilliant young minds, you're future strategic leaders, like it or not. And I'm interested in like what are your concerns for the future so Luke I think you've mentioned previously like that there's generally um, issues with global leadership on quite a few things but I mean when you've had your cup of tea you're about to go to bed what are you like oh gosh this is this is an issue for me the number one thing is climate change Mm. I've heard a lot of people talk about climate change as if it's a generational issue Mm. it's something only young people should be thinking about Uh, But for me, I I disagree completely. It's something everyone should be thinking about. From my perspective, I have trouble understanding why it's so hard for everyone to talk to each other about this issue and really try to figure out how we can tackle this challenge together because we'll need to. Mm. And I think it's something obviously that Reese and Jen touched on quite a bit is that People are probably not understanding the holistic effects of this issue and just how far-reaching it is. And maybe it is a matter of trying to get more buy-in, I suppose, from community because when they think when there's rhetoric at the moment about climate change, it seems to be like, oh, but, you know, my electricity bill or whatever. Um, But they're probably not understanding that there are very serious security implications to climate change like many different ways um so i I definitely that one definitely keeps me up at night marley what about you like what's what's on your mind yeah well climate change worries me too um but another thing that i really worry about is i think we're almost bombarded with so so much bad news that we seem to sort of switch off a little bit and we're not seeing people really standing up and being vocal about some really horrible things that are happening so I mean, I think in Australia's case, um, our treatment of refugees, but also the detainment um, of over a million people in Xinjiang province in China, the massive displacement of Rohingya refugees in Myanmar, and now they're all in camps in Bangladesh. But it just seems like we're all aware of these bad things, but maybe um, a little bit overwhelmed to really know how to stand up and take a stance on it. Mm. And I've always been really interested in what the difference is between a white um, South African mm. farmer and a Rohingya <laughs> yeah. or a Uyghur in Sydney. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, and outside of the general problem of us maybe picking and choosing mm. what we take strong stances on on human rights things, you know, that I think has very interesting diplomatic consequences for yeah. us. But there is also always broader security implications, mm. you know, and uh, like being at Aspie, I guess I do want to throw it back to that is that, mm. you know, with what's happening in Sinjung and Rohingya and mm-hmm. everywhere is mm-hmm. that there is some huge security implications for that. And linking back to climate change, mm-hmm. um, climate change will have devastating impacts on Bangladesh and where all those Rohingya are living mm-hmm. and they will then have to move again so you've got another mass movement of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it all comes back to security, I suppose. Well, <laughs> no, it's just one. <laughs> so, I mean, one element of it. Um, Jen, jumping over to you, thoughts, concerns? Yeah. Yeah, so building on both what Luke and Marley have just said, I think what a big issue now is not just that people are disengaged, but that our leaders don't have enough courage to deal with these issues, which also makes people feel like disengaging because they don't feel inspired to maybe take up these challenges like they have in previous decades. Mm. I definitely feel that there is a general sense of there's more pessimism. I think like mm. Marley touched on a little bit, but trust in in um, politicians and institutions. And I think it is a big problem. It's definitely mm. something to be concerned about. 
Reese, can you cap it up for us? Uh, it's a bit hard because I've picked on you and gone last, much like Princess Diaries. Um, Devastating. Can you, what's, what's uh, something else that's been on your mind? One thing that's consistently on my mind uh, is the growing personalization of conflict. So, Sorry, Reese, can I just jump in there? Mm-hmm. What, what does personalization of conflict mean? Because I actually have no idea. So there was a wonderful article written by Charles J. Dunlap about the hyper-personalization of conflict, conflict and what that means in cases of war. So one of the things that he focuses on is the widespread use of technology and things like facial recognition or drone swarms or other facets of our modernized age and how that impacts the home front will be an essential feature of how we build resilience as a society. So for example, uh, a couple of years ago, we had a few people from Al-Qaeda target families of soldiers who were serving overseas, Mm. spreading panic and building a sort of disconnect between the soldiers and their families. Mm. And I think this, these forms of personalized warfare and also information warfare and other parts of, of, an, of an age of disconnection whilst also connection mm. will be in a, a very formative part of how we deal with conflict over the next 20 to 30 years. It really does seem like the lines across a lot of things are starting to become more and more blurred mm-hmm. as technology yep. um, increases. Yep. And it's definitely something that I've thought about, but have never known to call it the personalization of conflict. Mm-hmm. So um, There's thousands of names. It's fourth generation <laughs> warfare, gray zone warfare, hybrid yeah. warfare. You'll be, yeah. 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 Very important for me to know, considering I'm running the Future of Warfare conference. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much, um, all of you, for, um, I guess, getting me up to speed on, on you know, some big strategic issues uh, at the moment. And thanks so much for taking over your podcast. Very well done. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Ray. So today with us, we have Fiona Tolan, who's the HR manager here at ASPE. She will be able to answer any questions that you that anyone out there might have about the internship. So Fiona, who would ASPE be looking for? ASPE generally takes four interns at a time, and we take four at the start of the year and four at the back end of the year. We take university graduates, so you have to have uh, graduated from an undergraduate degree. Although in saying that, a lot of our interns also have a postgraduate degree. We are looking for people with excellent academic results, although that's only one of a few key ingredients that makes an intern fabulous. Uh, We also, obviously, when we're looking through applications, look at a cover letter. A cover letter tells me your story, what you're looking to achieve at Aspie, why you think you would be a good asset, those sorts of things. So I'm looking for a good cover letter that tells me your story. And lastly, we're looking for relevant experience. So you don't always have to have had a lot of experience because you're only a certain way through your career. Uh, But volunteer internships, other similar internships are always relevant sort of experience that we look for. We look for uh, academic backgrounds that are varied. So we're not just looking for someone who's done international relations, politics or anything like that. We're also looking for people who from science backgrounds, engineering backgrounds, law, all disciplines really. And the the more varied the mix often, the better. So will the skills that uh, the prospective interns will be gaining at ASPE just be about research? Will they also be about other aspects? It's quite varied. So there is certainly a focus on research and there's an opportunity to join at least one um, major research topic that you'll 
be researching on, there's you get a lot of experience uh, writing and writing to a deadline, uh, writing in a different style from a university academic type style. It's more of a layman's um, style. You also definitely the events and networking is a huge part of um, ASPE. We try and engage the public in a debate. So there's lots of public events um, that the interns help out with um, and can attend as well. You attend roundtables with delegations. Um, I guess the amazing selling point of the ASPE internship, well, firstly, it's one of the few paid internships, but also the access that you gain to an amazing array of visitors that are attracted to ASPE. Uh, so that would be one of the huge um, selling points of the internship. You mentioned earlier one of academic excellence is just one key ingredient interns must have to be successful at ASPE. What other qualities do you think they should have? I think when we're looking, once we get down to interview stage, I'm really thinking about the teamwork aspect. It's uh, four, generally four, not always, but generally four interns that need to be able to work together. And I think my experience with different groups of interns, are if you get that mix right, and a personality type that is able to work in a team, it's a huge asset. I'm also looking for, we do later on in the selection process, you'll be asked to write uh, a piece. And what we're looking for in the piece is not necessarily amazing writing skills or research skills, because you might not have those yet, but an idea. So people with good ideas, um, original ideas, uh, and some level of analysis um, I think that those are the standout qualities. Uh, so, guys, I think it's actually time for the prospective interns to hear from you guys and what your selling points for the ASPE internship is and what you think are the most valuable things you got out of the internship program with ASPE. Okay, thanks, Fiona. Um, I've gained so much out of this internship. It's been um, a really amazing experience. Like you said, teamwork is a really big part of it and um, we've worked really closely as a team of interns and we've, I, I think we've all really improved at working together, sharing ideas, building on each other's ideas. Um, another thing I think we've all gained out of it is the confidence in ourselves and in our work. Um, we've all published a piece on The Strategist now, which is really exciting and a really great opportunity for young people to <laughs> publish their work. And I think for all of us, we've been able to work with some really amazing senior researchers and work in some really amazing teams. So I've been in the International Cyber Policy Center and the things I've learned from some incredible people, I don't think I could have gotten anywhere else. What about the coolest person you've met? I think that we've had some great delegations here. So we had a delegation from France who discussed with us the Sahel and some of the security problems they're dealing with there. Uh, Mike Rogers, the former head of the NSA, was mm. a fantastic person, really great insights into intelligence and how to um, maintain our, our competitive advantage as technological powers. And we've also had many experts from other research centers. So Dr. Samantha Hoffman does incredible work on social credit, as well as the Afghan delegation who also visited us, provided us with a very, very different perspective about the Afghan democratization process. And that was a great insight we would have never gotten from mainstream media. So we've had a wide array of different people come and speak to us. And that's been an extremely rewarding experience and will definitely help us go forward with our knowledge and people skills. Another really positive um, aspect of the internship I did not expect coming into ASPE was being able to uh, travel and go outside Canberra and go to Sydney um, to attend a Track 1.5 dialogue with 
uh, Japanese counterparts, uh, Jaya, and uh, a dialogue on the Quad as well, where we met US representatives, um, people from India, uh, Japan, France. We got, I got to see what it was like to have people discuss really important issues that I only really got to uh, learn about in an academic setting. So have, being able to sit in on quite what I thought was quite a quite uh, high level discussion on strategic issues in the Indo-Pacific region, how different countries saw uh, China's rise and how they should handle strategic changes in the region was quite interesting. Um, I know Mali, for example, you got to go to Vanuatu a few months back and that I'm sure you that was a very uh, excellent experience for you. Genevieve and Reese also got to go to Melbourne and Sydney. So uh, for any prospective intern, that's um, another thing to think about um, coming into ASPE. You might get a really good opportunity to travel and meet some really interesting people uh, during your time here as well. Oh, that's amazing, guys. I, I think um, Marley definitely did something right with being able to go off to Vatawachi. Um, but you've been a fantastic group. We've loved having you and um, we can't wait to see what you go on to do in the future because that's one of the best parts about being part of this internship program is really feeling like we're fostering the next strategic leaders and inevitably they go on to do amazing things. So it's really exciting for us to watch your, your careers take off from here. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks.